You are listening to Therefore, Let Us Go On to Maturity, a message from Hebrews 5 and 6, taught in the spring of 2008. And now, Pastor John Boulay. You may not know, but this is my drill weekend. I'm in the, I'm in the Air National Guard, for those of you who don't know me well. And uh, so Saturday I spent playing, uh, dressing up, as I call it, my costume. Uh, uh, up in Willow Grove, but uh, maybe it's rubbed off on me a little bit, but today's going to be a little bit of a drill Sunday for you. So it's not every day that I uh, get to allow my, uh, both of my lives to merge, uh, but they've merged today. Um, so get ready, because the normally excited me is doubly excited. Um, there's going to be a slide that's coming up in a second. It's going to have a couple of terms on it uh, because I'm about to start speaking quickly and I use acronyms. I'm at home in acronyms and my wife's like already warned me to be gentle with acronyms. So uh, it'll come up in a bit. Uh, what I want to talk to you about though, um, it actually is very relevant for today's message. I used to, my last assignment uh, before uh, leaving the active duty, I was an instructor and a course called Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals. Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals, also known as IFF. IFF is the most dreaded course for all young pilots in the Air Force. Um, because they have their wings when they come to us, but if they don't do well, we take their wings. Because we're the last people to decide, will this guy kill himself when he goes to a single-seat airplane or not? And so as a flight commander down there, I'm always asking the question with these guys, because uh, they're about to go into an environment where they're all by themselves. And so if they fall asleep at 9 Gs uh, because they don't do the right straining maneuvers to keep blood in their head, there's nothing to stop them from hitting the ocean. And, uh, and time and time again, uh, that surfaces. In fact, uh, four people have been lost in the past week and a half. So um, it's, a, it's a very serious course. Um, it's uh, a lot of fun for an instructor. It is no fun for the students. And the reason is, is because it's challenging. Now, when you guys or, and gals watch uh, stuff on TV like Top Gun, you probably see this thing that uh, you would call dogfighting, right? We don't call it dogfighting. And you can bring up the next slide. These are the terms that are going to start showing up. We don't call it dogfighting in our world. We call it basic fighter maneuvers. You see it? Basic fighter maneuvers. That's what we call it. And the reason is, is because it's basic, okay? By the time, in a real world, by the time that you see the bandit, the other guy, by the time you see the bandit in combat, things have really gone south. Well, if we're doing our job well, they will never, ever see us. It'll, be, it'll happen long before they actually get a visual idea of us, because we're good at that. But basic fighter maneuvers is very basic, and, and what we teach the students is, in the most rudimentary sense, how to dogfight. And so we put them in a jet and uh, with an instructor behind them. And we have another jet who is a dedicated bandit. He's an instructor. And his goal is to be as predictable as possible. I'll tell my student before we even take off, this is exactly what your bandit's going to do. At the fight song call, he'll be 410 knots. He's going to be 5.5 Gs until he's under this amount of weight. And he'll be 6 Gs. He's going to go on a right-hand turn. He's going to pull and pull and pull and pull. And it's up to your job to do X, Y, and Z to survive the fight. Okay? The bandit's very predictable because what we want to do is we want to isolate the elements of dogfighting that they need to learn. And to isolate something, you need to make everything else constant. 
So the bandit's always the same. Nothing's, you know, it's never one of us going out there to show these kids how to fight. It's never that way. It's very, very, very hard for an instructor, actually, to be a good platform because you're trying to be so stable so they can learn. And we have these things that we teach them called the axioms of BFM. We have three axioms of BFM, uh, basic fighter maneuvers. I'm going to give them to you backwards because I want to talk about the most important one last. So the first one I'll talk about is this idea called nose position versus energy fight. Uh, I'm not going to spend a long time because like some of you are like already glazing over. Uh, but this like, totally rocks. I need to find a young guy to look at who will like, keep me fueled up here, right? But nose position, all right, yeah. Nose I'll talk to you, Eric. Nose position versus energy fight is this idea that when you're flying in a fighter, energy is life. And you have kinetic energy and you have potential energy. And it's not a closed system, right? You have afterburning motors that are constantly pumping more energy into the system because you're using it. When you pull on the stick, the wings demand of the aircraft, and you transfer your energy into a turn, okay? Whether you're climbing or descending, right? The harder you turn, the more you have to pull to keep from descending because you have to generate more lift on the wings, those kinds of things. And those positions versus energy is simply a premise that we teach the students saying every decision you make, you have to have your energy state in mind because it doesn't just show up two seconds later. You could be 540 knots, and you could pull on the stick and you're over G. And then you got to go home and deal with a whole lot of red on your grade sheet, right? Or you could be 220 knots and you could pull on the stick and it won't do anything because the airplane has no ability to do, to obey your command. And you'll stall and then you'll get shot. So we say, nose business, when do I pull hard, when do I not pull hard? The second one is maneuver, and I got, I got visual aids, I'm so excited I got to use them. But the second axiom is maneuver in relation to the bandit. Maneuver in relation to the bandit. And what I mean when I say that is, uh, when you fly in combat, you're not flying against an unmanned aerial vehicle. You're flying against a human mind. And life is on the line. And so they're thinking, and they're countering, and they're counter-countering. And everything you do, they respond to, right, if they're good. All right? And so when you do something, you have to assess, how did that, the bandit digest my move, and what do I do to respond to it? And so it isn't like you can show up at a dogfight with this game plan, like I'm going to pull my throttles back and he'll blow right by, right, for anyone who's seen Top Gun. It doesn't work that way because you pull your throttles back and that guy goes, he just pulled his throttles back. I'll pull my throttles back. <laughs> and then I'll gun him at 220 knots instead of 500 knots. So that's how it works, right, because you're maneuvering in relationship to the bandit. And the third and most important, which is really first, with me, is called lose sight, lose fight. If you cannot see the bandit, you cannot kill the bandit. If you cannot see the bandit, you cannot defend from the bandit. If you can't see the bandit, you don't know what to do with your energy. Is it a nose position fight or an energy fight? I don't know. I can't see the bandit. How do I maneuver in relation to him? I don't know because I can't see the bandit. Now, again, Top Gun does a great disservice. Here's my visual aids. Now, my wife's like... She's like going to be barfing in the, in the corner here in a second. She's like, but, okay, you are the guy in front. The guy in the back is the? Bandit. The bandit. Awesome, awesome. Normally he would be red uh, because bandits are always red because of the communists. Uh, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, all right. Well, and in and, and, and Top Gun, the, the dogfight kind of looks like this. The right, uh, Maverick's up here. 
and he's doing this, going, I can't get him off of me. Well, he's not, because he's not turning, right? I can't get him off of me. And the guy's back here going, <laughs> right? And then he shoots, and this guy somehow does that, and it dodges every bullet. I don't know how that worked, right? But that's not how it works. And BFM and dogfighting, the way you cause problems to the bandit is with angles. Because everything that shoots on this jet shoots out of the front. So if you do this, no matter what you do in this plane of motion, you cannot escape doom. So you turn. And all of a sudden, you're out of plane with the bandit. Right? And so the whole goal is to maneuver your energy so that he can't ever get in. Right? If you're demanding more Gs on the jet and you're flying a tighter circle than him, he will forever in a day be outside of your circle the whole way around the fight. It doesn't work that easily, right? I mean, there's a lot of smart people out there that can solve it. But the goal is to use your energy and to maneuver to keep his nose off the jet. Now, and when he pulls, when the banner pulls, right, and you start to get this picture, this is, if you were my student, that's why I'd say, you see this picture right here? You'd hold it up, you know? When you see that, you need to cast your energy in, go out of point and move, not this. You need to move to avoid the gun, right? But the whole time you're doing that. And you have to keep sight. You lose fight, you lose, you lose sight, you lose fight. And the thought is, if you're doing this, where is, the, where is the guy up here looking to see the bandit? Is he looking to his right? If he looks to his right, what does he look at? He's looking at the ground. You guys understand that? It's a little bit of a spatial game here. If he looks to his left, he's looking at the stars, right? At the universe. To see the bandit, he's looking back, right, through his engines and motors and tails, like that. And that's how you fight a BFM fight. You fight it looking backwards the whole time. By the way, when you set your sticks down, you always set them down in root formation. That's just, <laughs> any, any good pilot knows that. So that's how you're looking. To keep sight in a BFM engagement, you're looking way back like this. You got your throttles way up, you're looking way back like this, trying to keep them, and you're under all this G. And uh, you, uh, you come home and, and your wife can tell because uh, you've got things called jeezels on your neck because your little blood vessels, uh, I guess they burst. So she can always tell when I fly one of these fights. Um, anyway, all that to say, it sounds really cool, doesn't it? I mean, it is a hoot. It's awesome. All right? But it is basic. And let me just be emphatic about that. Loose sight, loose fight is absolutely fundamental, but it is basic. Right? I don't care how good a guy can keep sight, there are more important, there are additional, advanced, important things that he needs to move on to as a student to be of any merit in an air combat environment. Because we haven't even begun to talk about weapons or of radar, or what about the fact that it rarely is it a one versus one engagement, right? Usually the one thing the enemy throws at us is quantity. So it isn't us against one of them, it's one of us against four or eight of them. So when you're in an environment like that, other things start to become bigger players, right? All of these things. Lose sight, lose fight is absolutely essential, but it is basic. And that's what we're talking about this morning. This morning, the writer of Hebrews is calling us to say, enough of the fundamentals. Let us move on to more important things. I'm not saying the fundamentals aren't important. We're not saying the fundamentals aren't fundamental. We're saying there is an advancement we must do to mature to be truly useful in a combat world. I will never take a student who has mastered lose sight, lose fight, and a T-38 that I flew into combat until he has mastered many, many, many other things. So with that, if you'll turn in your scriptures to Hebrew chapter 5. I got all that out of my system. 
Whew. The, only, the best thing about this is I get to say it twice. Uh, while you're turning into Hebrews, I just want to give you a, a capstone. Last week, Pastor Rick ended with a statement like this. He became, speaking of Christ, he became the source of our eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, for many of you, that might not mean very much. I, it's my feeling to the Hebrew readers at the time, they knew who Melchizedek was, but this was new territory for them as well. So, the writer of Hebrews, at that last sentence that we read last week of being the priest in the high order of Melchizedek, is breaking new ground in the Hebrew community. Okay, this is a, you should see this as a new teaching among the Hebrews. For him to back up and say, I'm going to tell you about a guy where there's about three sentences of in the entire Old Testament, okay, and I'm going to make a big deal about him is new. Okay, they're down with Abraham, they're down with Moses, they're down with the laws. Melchizedek was new. So if it's new to you, you're probably a, like a pretty good Hebrew today, back then. Uh, so that's what's going on here. And before he does, before he enters into this dialogue about Melchizedek, he takes a brief parenthesis. And the parenthesis is what we're dealing with today. Is he wants to talk about Melchizedek, but he doesn't know if they're ready. And so this is what he says. Starting in verse 11, I'm going to read verse 11 to verse 14 of chapter 5. We have much to say about this. He's speaking of Melchizedek. But it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. That's the introduction to his parenthesis. He wants to talk about Melchizedek, and he will. But he can't do it before he says to them, I wish I could just talk to you about Melchizedek and you guys would be right along with me. But I'm going to have to painstakingly lay all of this out so that you can keep up because you, have, you as a people have refused to move on from the fundamental basics. And he uses this term milk. Right? And when you hear this milk, when it's set, uh, definitely when it's juxtaposed against solid food, there's almost a negative connotation that comes out. You know, like, oh, we all want to be on solid food. But the reality is we don't all want to be on solid food, right? Nobody wants to start on solid food. I've never heard a doctor in our four occasions of having a kid say, right after Andrew gives birth going, if he's good, you'll be able to feed him on solid food tomorrow. Right? That's not the point. Milk is fundamentally crucial to the development of a child. Milk is what is best for a young believer. That's what, that's what the writer is saying here is, milk is what a young believer needs. The problem is, is you need to wean yourselves off of it. At some point, when you have a mouthful of teeth, right, they're there for a reason. So let's move on to the more mature issues of the faith. And so I don't want us to think, I don't want in any way today to diminish the element the elemental, fundamental essence of the faith, justification by faith, the divinity of Christ, the existence of heaven and hell, judgment, resurrection of the saints, baptism, the Eucharist, 
Those are fundamentally important issues in the faith. But it is from those things that we move on to apply ourselves to the Christian life. And that's what he says. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, but solid food is what? He says it is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. I, have, uh, I love this idea of practiced virtue. And it comes in part because uh, I, I rediscovered Christ in college. Right? I kind of uh, made the faith my own. And I made the faith my own in philosophy class. I was a philosophy minor. I was reading people, uh, really old dead people, uh, and all of a sudden I woke up one day and found Christ in all of it. And I found Christ in the Greek philosopher Aristotle. I mean, he, he was, to me, a Christian brother. I don't know if he's Christian or not, but he led me back. And, and when I read Aristotle, he wrote this wonderful book about ethics. It's just fantastic. And when he talks about ethics, he uses this idea that ethics are something that are developed through practice. So he lists out all the different kinds of ethics. You know? So he talks about uh, the, the ethic of generosity, and he kind of puts two poles. On one side you can be miserly, and on, on the other side you can just be a spendthrift who gives without judgment. He says in somewhere in between, not always in the center, right? But somewhere in between is this, is this elemental virtue called generosity. And the only way, according to Aristotle, that you really foster what true generosity is, is by practice. He says, virtues do not fall from the sky like manna. Manna falls from the sky. Virtues are practiced. And I feel like the elements of the faith, God gives us the elements of faith like manna from heaven. He gives them to us. And then he says, now take these, eat these, and go practice the virtues and develop. And that's what's going on in verse 14. I, think, uh, I don't think anyone's done a better job than Aristotle on, on those ideas of virtue. So I think it's just great. So apply them is the charge, right? But solid food in verse 14 is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. We have students, and when we fly, right, the first time you go out on your BFM mission, you should have no idea how bad this is. It's just, it's miserable. You almost get air sick. The kid is nervous, right? One second he won't pull hard enough and you're yelling, pull, pull! And then he really pulls, stop, 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 stop. Right, because you don't want him to over-G the airplane, right? Um, You're constantly trying, and how does he get better? By the end of the course, he's soloing against a bandit by himself. And that's eight rides. You take him from the first time he ever sees a bandit to soloing in a defensive set against a bandit is eight sorties. So the learning curve is absolutely steep, right? But the whole idea is you get out there and you practice and you practice and you practice. And for six weeks, they don't think of anything but flying. I mean, I've been there. So it's, it's terrible. It's a terrible, terrible place to be. So here we are. We're at our therefore statement in chapter 6. So here's the teaching. I'll read the first three verses. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and the faith in God, Instructions about baptism, the laying off of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. What the writer is calling them to do today is to say, today we must move on. If we are going to move on in our discussion of Melchizedek, which is if we are going to get deep into understanding what Christ has really done for us, 
We need to move on from these elemental things. Now, in the Hebrew world, they have different challenges, right? In the world that's receiving this letter, their challenge is constantly falling back into the ways of Judaism. Okay, that's their challenge. It may not be ours, although I have a sense that almost everyone who's ever gone to hell has gone to hell for the same reason, which is they have justified their lives through their works. So I don't think we're that different from the Hebrew, right? We just change it and repackage it and reflavor it. But he's saying to them, right, they've bought into Christ through grace, they've bought into this idea, and now there's the, they're teetering on, well, is it, is it grace plus this? How does baptism look? In fact, everything that was mentioned there by the writer, all of those elements of the faith, baptism, the laying on of hands, um, all of those things were elements in the Hebrew faith before Christendom ever showed up. Right? Baptism is not new to Christ. The Jews had seen baptism. They had seen laying on of hands. They had theology about resurrection of the dead and repentance of sin and faith. And so what he's saying is he's entering their world saying, these elements that we have pulled out that you used to think were substantive, we are showing that they are shadows of a truer Christ. And he's calling them to say, don't fall back. For us, it's different. Right? I, for us, we have different things in some case. Maybe it's just repackaged, but at least it feels different than Judaism that we are being called from. So I encourage you to seek to grow. I encourage you to advance. I encourage you to study. I encourage you to question. Question the faith. If it's true, it will stand up to rigorous examination. There's nothing in this book that we're scared that you read. Right? If you read this book to find out something, a mistake, God would rejoice. He'd say, I have a critical reader who is reading nothing but truth. What will happen from that? We need a church of critical readers and questioners. So do these things. Wrestle with them. Dialogue about them. Ask questions. Here's a few ways. That, you know, there's a million ways to seek maturity. Here's a few that I would encourage. At least they seem to be relevant in my life. The first way I might encourage you is to seek to, in some intentional way, leave the Christian bubble that you have built for yourself. Okay? Because we all do it. We all say for safety, these are the kind of parameters about my life, particularly when kids show up. This is the shelter I'm going to build to make sure that I control what comes in. And I would say in a very intentional way, I'm not saying just, you know, Katie, bar the door, head off, headlong into the world, but in an intentional way, right, through prayer, enter into the world and be not of the world. Right? Because, by the way, we're on a mission. And if we're in our bubble, not many people will see us. So we need to say, and to seek maturity, I need to apply myself. I need to take these elements and apply them to real life. And so I would encourage those of you who have sought an insular, secure Christian life to seek to exit the bubble. Another thing I would encourage is that in each of our lives there are those areas in Scripture that are uncomfortably hard or challenging. Sometimes there are places where we go, the Lord can't be serious about that. Right? There's probably somebody here who goes, the Lord can't be serious about a tithe. How could I possibly tithe? Right? Or the Lord can't be serious about the, the kind of sexual purity that he's talking about here. In our, in our world today, that's just not possible. And I would ask you, if, God, if Christ were here today, do you think he would lust? I'd say it's, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we have called, been called to be like Christ. And so we all have these issues. Does he really expect me to tame my tongue like that? 
do I really have to forgive this person because of what they did? Because it was serious. And I would say, if you want to seek maturity, begin to take those a little more seriously. Suggest to yourself that maybe he really means what it really said. And, and allow the Lord, I'm just asking you to soften your heart on these issues. Soften your heart and just allow the Spirit to work and see what the Spirit does. I don't know what the Spirit will do, but just allow Him to work. Thirdly, I would encourage you to avoid the Christian tendency of becoming issue-motivated believers. Avoid becoming an issue-motivated believer. What I mean is the Hebrew church, they are probably all caught up with certain of these elements about resurrection of the dead. You see it all the time in the New Testament. And I think a call to maturity is to be a well-rounded believer. So from personal experience, there were years in my life where I was a free will predestination Christian. Everything I saw fell in that lens. It had to fall in some kind of category. And it was to my detriment. It's what started out healthy became a handicap in my spiritual life because I couldn't enjoy a sermon about loving your neighbor. Because, well, now, has that always been my neighbor? Or is that my neighbor by choice? You know, I, I was asking just silly questions. And we all do that, right? You see people who their whole life is about eschatology. There's radio stations I tune into around here. I can't ever get a message that's not about the end times. And that is a key to me that this is immaturity. They cannot talk about the whole countenance of Scripture. There's some people who... I mean, I can even imagine people who are so mission-oriented for Christ that they think the whole goal of the gospel is, is to be in the mission field and to evangelize. The gospel is bigger than that. That's an important part of the gospel, but the gospel is about the kingdom of God and our participation and worship of Him. And there are people who enter the mission field immature because they are issue-driven into it. And so I would encourage you, if you have one of these issues, if you always notice, if you've been listening to this service with an issue in mind, identify it as a place of potential immaturity. When we fly, the most important part of the sortie is not the flight itself. It's a thing that happens afterwards. It's called the debrief. And the debrief, okay, so we don't have a lot of gas, and when you're using afterburners, even less. And so sometimes our sorties in the airspace, the actual flight time is about 20 minutes. And we come down. It's not been unheard of to debrief for two to two and a half, three hours on 20 minutes because there's so much to be learned. And as you're teaching the student, there is nothing better than watching a light bulb come on. And he's just like, I can't understand. Because they're all doing their best, right? Many of us here are doing our best, right? And you're doing your best, and, and through the dialogue and through instruction the debrief, there's this conversation, you see the light bulb go off, right? And when I do that, I try painstakingly to follow this light bulb up with a real-world experience. Because I'm like, this person is in a place where there's a revelation, and if I can match it to real-world experience, it, he will go far with this. And so I whip out some war story. You know, that in some remote way, you know, indirectly relates to the concept. And it just latches on. And what I think we need to become as a church is a church of real-world experiences. Where we have these fundamentals of Christ, but we've gone out and we've done it. And so when we conversate with one another and when we evangelize, we're evangelizing with a real-world experience faith that is mature. That's our teaching. Now, I'm not done. Um, and uh, those of you who are familiar with this section of Hebrews, you know I'm not done, um, or you'd call me a coward. 
but uh, before we move on, I want to be emphatic that this is the teaching from Scripture. From, from where we start to where we finish, the writer of Hebrews is trying to demonstrate one thing today, and that is move on from immaturity. Grow up. Mature. Apply. Seek discernment. That is the teaching. Because we're about to head somewhere. For those of you who don't know, if you're like on a nice canoe trip down a river, going, oh, this is nice. We're heading toward a waterfall. Okay? Those of you probably who know the waterfall have been waiting the whole day to see what I'm going to say. And I would caution you that that might be a sign of immaturity. The teaching has passed. And I hope you have not missed it. Okay? So here we go. One brief comment before we get into it. So when I ha- we all, uh, many of us have kids. Some of us have a lot of them. But when it's time for them to clean their room, this is, this you've, many of you have probably heard a conversation either on one end of, uh, of the relationship. You say, go clean your room. It's not uncommon that the child resists, right? They hem and they haw. They act like they're hard of hearing. They give excuses, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so what often happens with good parents is you kind of give them a, a, a whammy, right? You say, hey, I asked you to please go clean your room, right? It goes on like that. Finally, after you do it, and depending on where you are and how you raise your kids, you may do it two, three, forty times, right? Um, you get to a place where you say something around about like this. Go clean your room or else, right? Now, all you ever care about is that the child would go clean his room, right? The or else never was intended to be part of the conversation. You haven't even thought of your or else. That's why you said it, right? You're like, I just need time to think, right? So go clean your room or else. What you want the child to say is, okay, and if they're going to ask a question, you would be, oh, mother and father, how may I obediently best clean the room to your liking so that I may honor you? Right? But that's never the question. When you say, go clean your room or else, what is the question that comes from the child's mouth? Or else what? They get immediately locked and transfixed by the or else. Which is bizarre because it's the one thing you don't care about. You want the room clean. That's all you want is the room clean. And they say or else, and so you say or else, you'll get a spanking. Right? The next question is not, oh, okay, it's, in our home, it's, who exactly will be doling out the spakings? <laughs> right? At which point you're like, uh, dad. <sighs> to which they don't go, how may I then honor you? They say, will it be two or three? <laughs> you know? And the whole suggestion is, to the parent, you're saying they have missed the whole point. I've at, what I want is that they would clean the room. That's what I want. And they've become totally fixated on the or else. Right now, we are sitting at the comma in the sentence of or else. So you have heard the teaching. Mature. Okay? We are without excuse. A sign of maturity right now is that we mature. You're going to hear an or else because we, we are not all mature. The church has not always been mature. And so the writer is giving us an or else. But I do not want us to walk out this morning focused on the or else. Because we will miss the teaching. Or else. Verses 6, 4 through 8. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit 
who have, uh, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in rain, often falling on it, and that produces crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. That is a big or else. Now, I'm short on time, uh, and I don't want to cheat this, um, so I'm going to say what I think are the most important things. The first of which is, this is not the first time it has showed up in the book of Hebrews. So the first sermon that Pastor Rick preached, the therefore statement sounded something like this. Therefore, brothers, I encourage you, be careful that you do not drift away from Christ. Why is there a warning about drifting away if it's totally theoretical? The writer is concerned about drifting away. Two weeks ago, Pastor Rick preached something like this. Therefore, while it is still today, I encourage you to seek the rest of God. And the example used was the Hebrew people after the Exodus who refused to seek God's rest and he scattered them across the desert and said, you will never enter my rest. So this band of Hebrew people who were covenanted, confessing, believing people who had decided to follow God through the desert were destroyed in the desert because of their unbelief. So already we have seen two examples. We're arriving at our third. In the book of Hebrews alone, there are five some subtle, some not so subtle conversations with the same kind of warning. In chapter 10, the warning ends something like this. It is a terrible thing to be found in the hands of the living God. So what do you think that warning feels like? The one in chapter 12 sounds something like this. For our God is a consuming fire. So I don't want to make light of this, because the second we make light of it, our theology will dismiss it as theoretical. The or else here is serious. Mature or else. It's also, I should say, and I don't want to neglect to say, it's not unique to Hebrews. So Christ gives a parable. It sounds something like this. He says there's, uh, gives a parable of the story. He says a man goes and casts seed. And the seed's the gospel, right? He's casting seed in a field. Certain seed lands in certain places. At one point, some seed lands in some what appears to be good soil, but it's not deep and there's thorns. And he says, speaking of how the gospel enters someone's soul, he says immediately this plant springs up and with vibrance, and what happens to it the second it's tested by the weeds? It's strangled, and it's brought down, and it amounts to nothing. So Christ himself has given us this warning. He says it again a little bit later in Matthew 7, chapter, uh, verse 22. He says, there will be people who come to me at the end of the day at judgment and says, Lord, Lord, did I not do miraculous things in your name? Did I not prophesy? Have I not done miraculous works? Have I not evangelized in your name? And what will he say to you? He will say, depart from me, you evildoer. I have never known you. So there is a stern warning for professing believers that we ought to be sober about maturing in the faith and that it is not okay to remain juvenile with the principal teachings. I know, and I, uh, this is a theological hotbed, I, and I have concern about that. I, am, uh, I hope this tempers uh, with a fair amount of humility that I cannot resolve to the nth degree every, everything that works out of this. What I do know is that God cares that I mature. 
And he, he's not so worried about how often I ask or else what. So the teaching today is clear. I think I've said that a few times. I will say, <clears throat> in closing, oh, uh, that uh, a few things we can know about this is, one, we can have complete confidence. And so this is what he is not saying, and I want to encourage some of you, particularly those who are new to the faith, the writer is not saying that Christ is in some way incomplete in his salvation of us. He is not saying that, that our security cannot be found in the hands of Christ. Christ has fully and finally and totally provided perfect salvation and sanctification for his people. There is nothing that you can do if you're in the faith that can, that, that's, that can allow someone to pry you from the hands of God. You are safe in his hands. And I want to encourage you about that. I strongly believe that those of us who are in the faith and those of us who belong to Christ are safely held and will be preserved. So there is no fear there. The writer is not, in fact, most of Hebrews goes on to suggest the totality of Christ's salvific power. The, the book is about Christ did it once and for all. What was shadow of substance? It's done. The one thing that we bring to the table that is threatened, however, is our faith. That's all we ever bring to the Lord, and that's what he's talking about. Seek the Lord's rest. Seek faith in him. Do not drift away. Be faithful to him. Mature. Mature in your faith with him. That is where the warning is. The warning is to the one thing that sits on our side of the fence. Is take your faith seriously. One scholar described it this way. People are frequently immunized against disease by being inoculated with a mild form of it. In the spiritual realm, experience suggests that it is possible to be immunized against Christianity by being inoculated with something which, for a time being, looks like the real thing, and that it is generally mistaken for it. I encourage you today that if you think you're safe because you've been baptized and you come on Sunday and you've taken communion and your parents grew up in the church, I would say you run the risk, if that is your criteria, you run the risk of being immunized against the very faith you claim to participate that God is calling us to real applied faith. Take the, take the truth of baptism and bring it to the world. Take the, meaning of, take the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist and express it in the world, and you will go on. You will move on from the elementary things. So that's our warning. I've run out of time. In closing, I'd like to say, I have a friend... He went through IFF just before me. He went on to fly the A-10. When you go to the A-10, or any fighter, there's a kind of a probationary period where you're not worth anything. You're a liability um, because you're not good. And when you're not good, you're not deployable. They can't send you into combat until they have faith that you're not going to kill yourself or hurt somebody else. And when you finally get good enough in the A-10, which takes about uh, six or eight months of practice in any airplane, uh, they use this term that they call mission-ready. And when you're mission ready, it means that you go on the books as if, if the war kicks off, you're going. And you're going to be value added and you're going to be on a combat mission. We don't bring anybody who's going to fly who's not mission ready. Okay, and in my opinion, there's not a mission that's on the deck that I'm not going to give them because they're mission ready. I had a buddy who went through IFF and then he went through this basic course. And the day after he became mission ready, the very day, it was 1999, the day after he became mission ready, his squadron deployed from Spangdalem, Germany, to Kosovo. 
And two and a half months later, he had more combat time than, than peacetime in the A-10. And I would encourage us this morning that you and I are sitting here and God is waiting for mission-ready Christians to use. We've been called to be used in this world. And he wants to use us. I don't know why he's chosen to use us. I don't understand that. But he has. I'm fully confident that he wants to use us. And what he's waiting for is for us to pony up and say, we're mission ready. Use me. Apply me. And he will be gentle and merciful. But he will use us.